0: If you have your copy of the scriptures, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12 will be our text for our time together this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find that in the Pew Bibles beginning on page 1026 or you can read alongside someone next to you who has a copy of the scriptures. But I encourage you to, to get that text in front of you as we look at that together this morning. How many of you have heard of the Christmas truce of 1914? All right. Some, maybe a third or so. The, the Christmas truce of, of 1914 was not a formal truce. 1914, the first winter, the first Christmas of what became known as the First World War. Earlier in December, Pope Benedict had actually encouraged the countries involved in that war, particularly Germany and Britain, to call a ceasefire of hostilities during that season in recognition of Christmas. But the the leadership, no, we, we are not going to do that. Full steam ahead. But... It was the soldiers themselves along the Western Front, beginning on Christmas Eve, who called an informal truce of sorts. Many German and British troops... Saying Christmas carols to one another across the lines. They're in the trenches singing to one another. Some of the German soldiers putting Christmas trees up on top of the wall with the lights, and the British soldiers, like, what's going on here? Is that a a threat or what? And they realized that this was a a temporary truce. The next day, it, it continued on Christmas Day some of the troops in some of the locations on that western front began venturing out into no man's land and they exchanged gifts that they had received from back home with one another they sang christmas carols together some of them engaged in a friendly game of soccer football as they call it some of them used that time in a more sobering way, burying their fellow soldiers who had died in that no man's land. This so-called truce, Christmas truce of 1914, came five months after the outbreak of the war in Europe. It was one of the last examples of the outdated notion of chivalry between enemies in warfare. It was never repeated again. The leadership on both sides saw to it that disciplinary action would be taken in 1915 and beyond if similar actions were taken. But this heartwarming story, if even for a moment, is a reminder of what we think about and what we celebrate at Christmas, what many who, as Bill prayed just a moment ago, celebrate and they don't even know why it is they're celebrating. There's a, there's a longing for what the angels pronounce, peace, goodwill toward men. And so it might seem a bit strange that the title for the sermon, Two Days Before Christmas, would be, the war on Christmas. But Edmund Sears, who wrote that song included in our hymnal, it came upon a midnight clear, recognized a truth as he thought about the Christmas season. He reflected back on the angel's pronouncement in Luke 2 of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And after he reflects on that in the first verse, then Sears writes this in the second verse. Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel strain have rolled two thousand years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife. And hear the angel sing. Our passage this morning reminds us of a strife, a war at Christmas. But it also reminds us that a way of peace has been made in that war. Let's read from the Gospel of Matthew. Let's read, actually, our our focal text is verses 1 through 12, but let's read back beginning in verse 18. We were reminded of this story in the children's lesson, and we're going to read a little bit beyond to, to see the story of the wise men and Herod in context, because there are things that are happening around that help us to appreciate what it is that Matthew is doing with this story. Let's read, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. because they are no more. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we pause again, Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to embrace, give us feet to follow what you have in this text for us. Father, help us to see the great gift that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see, Father, what it is that we need to be saved from and how it is that Jesus is the one who is the Savior of all who will come to him in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we think about this familiar story of the wise men and their visit to Jesus... There are three things that I want us to focus on in this story and our reflections of it. First, we're going to think about this story itself. This story. Well, what's, what's going on here? But then second, we want to think about this story and the bigger story. The bigger story that this story fits into. And then lastly, this story and our story. So we're going to look at this story. We're going to look at the bigger story that this story fits into. And then we're going to think about how this story in total is, is our story. Each of us individually and us collectively. So what about this, what about this story? Matthew in the first verse highlights all of the key individuals, key places as an introduction. Notice, after Jesus. This is about Jesus and what has happened after he has been born. He's the main figure of this story and the whole gospel of Matthew. We could say he is the main figure of the whole word of God, which he is. This is a story about Jesus. This happened to me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this is where the second half of the story takes place, where it was that the child had been born. It's not just any Bethlehem. It's specified. This is Bethlehem of Judea, the city approximately five or six miles south, southwest of Jerusalem. The the statement of it being in Judea, linking it with the tribe of Judah from which this child would come. All these things took place in the days of Herod, the king. This tells us when these things happened, but it also identifies another major character in these events, Herod, the one ruling over that region of the world at that time. Behold, wise men from the east, Another group of key individuals in this story and where they came to. They came to Jerusalem, the city where the first half of the story takes place. This is the situation of the story. What happens here? Notice three individuals or three groups of individuals in this story. First of all, as we said, this is about Jesus. This is a story about Jesus, The book of Matthew and all the Gospels, they're not just collections of stories about Jesus. They're not just biographies of Jesus. You might find on Amazon or Barnes & Noble if you can find one that's open, right? These, These are not modern day biographies. No, these are accounts of those things that took place in the life of Jesus communicating something significant about him. And Matthew gives his reader a clue at the very beginning of his gospel what it is that he is wanting his... Readers to understand. And by the time you get to chapter 2, by the time you get to the story of the wise men going to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem, if you've read from the beginning, you're already clued in a little bit about what's going on with this Jesus. Because notice how Matthew begins his gospel. Matthew 1, chapter 1, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those two titles, Matthew sets off at the beginning to announce from the get-go, this is who this one is. This is the son of David that the Jews have been looking for. 2 Samuel 7 God promises David, you will have a son who will sit on the throne and reign forever. Matthew is saying, this Jesus about whom I write, he is that son of David. But he's not just the son of David. He's also the son of Abraham. Why is that significant? Because Genesis 12, what does God promise to Abraham? I will make you a blessing to all the nations. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Matthew is saying, this Jesus descended from Abraham. He is the one through whom all of these blessings to all of the nations will come forth. This story is about this Jesus, the promised son of David, the promised son of Abraham. Matthew writes that these things took place after Jesus was born. Linking back to what he just wrote at the end of what we delineate as chapter 1. The child has been born. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph didn't get the name Jesus off of the top 100 list of Hebrew baby boy names. He didn't get the name Jesus off of babies.com. He got the name in a direct revelation from the angel of the Lord, who said, this will be this child's name. And Joseph, a man of uprightness, a man of integrity, in obedience to the Lord, gives the child this name. Why that name? Because in Hebrew, Aramaic, it is Yeshua, what we read in the Old Testament as Joshua, which means the Lord saves. This is the one through whom the Lord will save. This is not just the one through whom the Lord will save. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is God who saves. So that as the reader of Matthew's gospel comes to the account of the Magi and Herod and the Christ child, we're told this. This story is about this child. This is a child who has come to do great things this is the child who was promised this story is about him but we don't just read about Jesus in Matthew 2 we read about these curious figures magi translated here in the ESV wise men who were they How many of them were there? Notice, we don't know how many there were. We don't know how many there were. Maybe there were three. Maybe there were two. We know there were at least two because it's plural, wise men. Where did the three come from? The three came from the three gifts that they give to Jesus. But we don't know how many are in this entourage. But what we do know is that they're watching the skies, they star readers, they're astrologers, and as they have read the stars, they have perceived that a king of the Jews has been born. Not someone, Matthew says, who has been born to become king of the Jews, one who from his birth is the king of the Jews. And so they have come to pay homage to him. And so where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was the city of the king. The star didn't lead them to Jerusalem. They read the stars and they saw king of the Jews. We don't know how they did that. We don't know exactly what it was that they saw. But in God's providence... They saw and they concluded in this instant, rightly, that a king had been born. So they go to pay homage to this king. But these men themselves, they weren't kings. Sorry if that destroys your nativity. But they weren't kings, and Matthew's readers wouldn't have associated them as being kings. Rather, they would have understood them as being servants of kings. They were probably coming on behalf of a king or kings from the east in order to honor this newborn king of the Jews. They are learned men. Often priests who specialized in astrology, the interpretation of dreams, in some cases in the magical arts. They were found all over the Roman world, but were especially associated with Babylonia, that is modern-day Iraq, or Persia, modern-day Iran. And that is the most likely meaning of the term the East. They came from that region that on our maps is Iraq, Iran. They have come And we think of these wise men positively. Matthew wants us to understand these magi in a positive light, right? They're the ones who worship the the King Jesus. And we think of them in in high and honorable terms. We've all seen the Christmas cards. Wise men still seek him, right? In reference to this story. But the Jews... And even later, Christians didn't think of Magi generally in an honorable way. Rather, as two commentators put it, some Magi did honestly inquire after the truth. But many Magi in Jesus' day were rogues. They were charlatans. They were deceivers. Many uses of magi, especially in a Jewish or Christian context, are clearly pejorative. They're insults. We see this in Acts 13. Not every mention of magi necessarily refers to what we would call magic, but it was a gray area from which Jews and Christians preferred to keep their distance. It's remarkable to find Matthew introducing Magi into his story without any sign of disapproval. However, widely respected the Magi may have been in Mesopotamia and in the Greek and Roman world, their title was not one which a careful Christian would willingly introduce without warrant into his account of the origins of his faith. We, th- we think of these magi respectively because of the way Matthew presents them, and so we should because of how they responded to Jesus. But that's not how the- these supposed wise men were commonly understood in the days of Jesus. And as Matthew writes his gospel... They, it's almost like they're Matthew's Samaritans, right? Jesus tells that story, that parable in Luke of the good Samaritan to shock his audience that it would be the Samaritan, not the religious leaders who would do what is right. It's almost as if Matthew is doing something similar here with the Magi because Jews and later Christians didn't generally associate Magi with God-honoring behavior. And yet here they do. This is a contrast to the other key figure in this story, Herod. Who is this Herod? We know him as Herod the Great. Herod the Great, as he's now called, he's born in 73 BC, named King of Judea, palestinian region including jerusalem and bethlehem by the roman senate in 40 bc by 37 bc he had crushed with the help of roman forces all opposition to his rule he was wealthy politically gifted intensely loyal an excellent administrator he was known as a great builder of public works He was a shrewd diplomat in his dealings with Romans and Jews. His famine relief was superb, and his building projects, including the rebuilding of the temple, was admired even by his enemies. But he loved power. He inflicted incredibly heavy taxes on the people and resented the fact that many Jews considered him a usurper, being appointed over them by the Romans. His rule was tyrannical ruthless, cruel, and as Herod grew older, he became increasingly paranoid about threats against his person and throne. He had numerous sons, wives, and others close to him put to death because he feared plots to overthrow him. After frequent disputes with Caesar Augustus, the emperor uttered his famous pun that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. This is Herod, Herod, the paranoid, tyrannical ruler, he doesn't rejoice when he hears that this king of the Jews has been born. This king, this Messiah, awaited for a thousand years. Here he is. And what is Herod's response? He's troubled. And all Jerusalem with him Jerusalem's probably troubled. The the leaders in Jerusalem are probably troubled. Why? Because they knew how Herod took threats to his throne. And they feared how he would respond. Herod, on the other hand, was troubled. He was disturbed. He was agitated. Only one other time does Matthew use this word troubled in his gospel. It's interesting. You know when it was When the disciples in Matthew 14 see Jesus walking on the water, and what do they think? What do they think they see? A ghost. And what are they when they see that ghost? They're troubled. They're distressed. Same response that Herod gives here to this news. He is in severe unrest. And so what does he do? The Magi ask the question, where is this one who has been born? They don't know that Herod doesn't know that Herod would take this as a threat. Where is he? We have come to worship him. So what does Herod do? He doesn't roll out the red carpet. He doesn't gather the chief priests and the scribes those who knew the law well in order to satisfy the wishes of the magi no he is doggedly self-interested in finding out where this child has been born because as the story continues he's going to do something about it where is this child in bethlehem in david's city Where the story of Ruth and Boaz takes place, where David was anointed king. It's in this city that this son of David, this long awaited Messiah, has been born. And so, what does Herod do? He forms a plan deceptively. He tells the Magi, Go, find him, send word back so that I too may go and worship him. It's a ruse! Herod wanted to know, as we read, where this child was so that he could kill him. Herod wasn't rejoicing. Herod was opposing, he was rejecting this king who had been born. And so we can see. Given the divinely inspired witness that we have from Matthew, we can see what's going on that Herod, that the Magi, could not see. We can see from the story of Joseph that this is the one who has been born, God with us. We know where the story is going. Divinely revealed in a dream to Joseph, veiled. But in a way, nonetheless, revealed to these magi that something significant had happened. We see the story behind the story. Which brings us to the bigger story. What's Matthew doing here? Matthew's not just telling us about what happened in the days after this child was born. But well, what he's doing is he's setting up themes that he's going to continue through the rest of his gospel. Two in particular for us to see quickly. First is acceptance and rejection. We have a picture of acceptance of this Christ child, we have a picture of rejection. We have in this a picture of God likewise rejecting the Jewish leaders and accepting all from every tongue, from every tribe, disgraceful though their background may be, who will come and worship this king who has been born. The genealogy of Jesus, we don't have time to go into it, but the genealogy of Jesus makes the same point, particularly in the women mentioned in the genealogy. Go back and read it. It's not just there to fill space. It's saying that this one who has been born, yes, he is the king of the Jews, but he is also the king of all who will come to him in repentance and faith, Jew and non-Jew alike. Acceptance pictured in the Magi's response to Jesus. Rejection pictured in Herod's response to this newborn king. But not just acceptance and rejection, but also the kingdom. Matthew's setting up what Jesus will later proclaim as the coming of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, term primarily used in Matthew. We don't see the baby Jesus, the child Jesus, preaching here, right? But later, Jesus will proclaim that he is the one who, who is bringing in this saving reign of God, he goes about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what does he say? In that parable of the soils, in his interpretation, ever, you remember the soils, four soils, the seed was sown, three on troubled ground, one on good soil. Jesus is saying that those who come into the kingdom are like that good soil. They are the ones who accept my message. They are the ones who accept me as king. Those who reject me in favor of safety, in favor of ease, because they just don't care. Those are the ones who are opposed. You see, Herod was right Herod Herod was right that Jesus was a threat to his kingdom. But not in the way he thought. Because Jesus wasn't coming to overthrow Herod's reign. Jesus wasn't coming to overthrow the Roman occupation. Jesus was coming to overthrow the reign of sin. Jesus was coming to overthrow the reign of the devil the prince of the power of the darkness. And this story in Matthew 2 is not just about the wise men going to see the newborn Messiah. This is an account that what has happened in Bethlehem is a declaration of war. The wicked one, the one who is a liar from the beginning, Jesus calls him. He knew there was coming a day. He knew there was coming one of Eve's seed to crush his head. This is why Satan hates babies. He hates children. There's an old commentary on that. But he especially hates Hebrew children. When Pharaoh had the Hebrew midwives kill those baby boys as they were born, that wasn't about Pharaoh clinging to his kingdom, though it was in part. It was a satanic attack to thwart the coming of the deliverer. Now, in Bethlehem, the city of David... A new Moses, a greater Moses, the Redeemer, the Deliverer has been born. And so Satan trumps up his wily ways again, seeking to put an end to his destruction. But as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And God's plan will win in the end. And so the child is is spared and he becomes the savior of the world. He becomes the deliverer from sin, the deliverer from the kingdom of darkness for all who will come to him by faith. And this is our story. This is our story in this bigger story, this bigger story of God's redemptive work to save us, not from tyrannical political rulers, but to save us from sin, to save us from ourselves. This is our story in the gracious work of God, in the gift of this child, and the worship that we are to give him because you see Herod's greatest threat was not outside threats to his kingdom the greatest threat to Herod his greatest problem was the sin in his own heart that drove him to cling bitterly to his power and his prestige and the very same war, if even in a muted way, takes place in all of our hearts. The half-brother of Jesus, James, puts it this way in James chapter 4. Turn with me to James 4, verses 1 through 3. As you hear James write, listen for the echoes of Herod's wicked devices. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's writing to believers. What causes this dissension in your midst? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, what James shows us is that in the end, we're all little Herods. There's a war of desires within our hearts and we're striving to build our own kingdom, our own kingdom of cards, that will fall at of breath and will doggedly protect it, however we might. It is this that Jesus has come to rescue us from. And so, what do we do? What do we do? First, we must all repent. We must all repent of our Herodian hearts, our hearts that reflect sinful wickedness. This happens in two ways. This affects us in two ways. For some of you this morning, your Herodian heart is demonstrated in your opposition to Christ, just like Herod was opposed to Christ. may not be active opposition. It may be just disinterest. Don't care. But this one who has been born, who is Emmanuel, who is the deliverer, there is no middle ground with him. There is either acceptance or there is rejection. And so not accepting Jesus, not trusting him as your deliverer, as your king, that is to oppose Jesus. But there's hope. There's hope. But before we get to that hope quickly, this Herodian heart affects Others as well. Many of you here this morning, you're not opposed to Jesus. You love Jesus. You're trusting Jesus. You want to follow Jesus. And we have the promise that God has given us new hearts. He has given us a new birth so we might love and follow Jesus. But our hearts are not yet fully transformed. We still struggle with sin. We still give in to temptation. We still show evidence of that Herodian heart. And so we too, we too must repent. We can't look at Herod and say, he should have known better. We have to look at Herod and say, I can be like that too. I can reject the reign of Christ even in a moment too. Our angry words, our cutting words, no words, cold shoulders, bitterness, ingratitude, all of these reflect a demand for our own way, our own kingdom that echoes The Herodian heart. So what do we do? We repent. We repent, we acknowledge before the Lord, I am a sinner. I need to be rescued. We're trusting in Christ, we're convicted of our sin. We still repent. Repentance is an ongoing lifelong practice. We repent of our Herodian heart, but we also worship. This story is our story because we are also invited, not just to turn away, but to turn to Christ and rejoice in Him. The good news of Christmas in this particular story is the good news of the Magi's role. The Magi, despised by so many, and yet, under the inspiration of the Spirit, here they are as models of worship, telling all who will hear, come to Christ. No matter your background, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have come from, God's arm is not too short to save because this is Jesus, the one who has come to save his people from their sin the promise of Christmas was the birth of a child king. The promise in the war on Christmas is the gift of a new birth. A new birth of hearts that love and follow Christ. What did the Magi do? They went to Bethlehem, guided by the star, to the place where the child was. They went into the house and they fell down and worshiped. They offered these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to this king. The Magi probably, in truth, the Magi probably were not honoring him as divine. They didn't know all of this that, by God's grace, we know from the disciple Matthew. But rather, they are pointers. They are pointers to how one should respond to the newborn king. Don't be like Herod, be like the wise men. Don't reject Jesus, don't oppose Jesus, don't seek to thwart the reign of Jesus. Fall down in worship at this King of kings and Lord of lords. But not only worship this king who has come and given himself for his people, but also worship this king who will come again. Because not only has he come, but he is coming again. He is coming again to rescue his people. As the writer of Hebrews says, not to deal with sin that has already been dealt with, but to gather his people who are anxiously awaiting his appearing. So we worship the king who has come. We worship the king who is coming. If you are here this morning and, and you're, you have questions about something that we've thought about this morning, you're wondering, what does that mean? What does that look like in my own life to repent of my heart like Herod's, my own trying to build my own kingdom, have my own way? What does that look like? I would love to talk with you. I'll be in the foyer after the service. I'd love to sit down and and talk with you. But as we conclude, and we think about how we might, what this repentance might look like, and how we might worship this Christmas season, this King who has come, and this King who has come again, we're going to sing a familiar hymn. Not a Christmas hymn, but but a familiar hymn. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You'll notice that we've provided the lyrics in the bulletin this time. Normally, we, we sing when we sing the song. We sing it out of the hymnal on the screens. The words will also be on the screens. But if you look close closely, you'll notice there's an extra verse. Now almost always when we sing a hymn, we sing all the verses that are there, right? So some of you are probably thinking, oh great, we sing all the verses, and now they're even adding another verse for us to sing. Well, actually what happened was when Robert Robinson wrote this hymn, he wrote it with four verses. It became customary shortly after he wrote it for it to be published with the three that we typically sing. But we've added the fourth that has been recently modernized, still faithful to his meaning, but with more modern words. We've added it to sing this morning because of the way that it strikes a worshipful tone for looking ahead to the king who will come again. The first three verses acknowledge that we need God's work to continually conform our Herodian hearts. But in the fourth verse, we celebrate the fact that there is coming a day when we, whose hope is in Christ, will be fully transformed, we will be with him and like him when we see him as he is. So after I pray, let's sing this prayer, this prayer for God to be at work now in our lives and also this prayer of anticipation for that great work yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we transition, as we prepare to to sing, as we prepare to sing about the things that we have just thought about, as we prepare to sing a prayer for you to continue the great work that you have started in the lives of your people. Father, open our eyes to see where it is that we're demanding our own way. Where it is that we're demanding that things be the way that we think they ought to be and we are opposing you as Herod opposed this newborn king. Father, help us also to rejoice, to rejoice in the promises that you have made, to welcome all who will come to Christ by repentance and faith. The promise of the new birth that Christ has made possible by his death and resurrection. Father, help us to to glory in your great work for sinners like us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.